Thanks, Jenna. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Teresa Santa Lucia. I am a partner at Klein Hornig. We're a mission-driven law firm that um, works in affordable housing and community development. Um, one of my specialty is uh, affordable, uh, affordable housing and nonprofits um, working with uh, community developers. Um, I also sit on the BBA tax exempt um, uh, steering committee, and uh, this uh, seminar is uh, sponsored in conjunction with an event that that committee puts on, which is a charitable board service uh, panel, where we um, provide resources for attorneys who are thinking of joining a charitable board. Um, so again, this is a kind of a primer for that um, event, which is on May 10th. And the idea is that this is giving some of the legal substantive um, um, background that any attorney who's thinking about joining a board and becoming a board member should um, keep in mind. Uh, so with that, um, I am going to begin. And again, I'll try to monitor the, um, uh, the Q&A and I know Jenna's gonna help me as well. Um, our agenda is to just, I, I think probably many people having looked at the um, attendance list are familiar with an, a nonprofit organization or a not-for-profit organization. I call them NPOs, um, I think, uh, but we're gonna do a quick recap just to make sure we're all on the same page. And then we're gonna talk about governance. We're gonna talk about roles, uh, the legal duty, some procedures and policies, uh, board review topics that I think is, are important, especially for new board members who are joining organizations, some liabilities and some protections. And then we're gonna talk about compliance um, briefly. The idea is to leave some room at the end of the seminar to answer some of the Q and A's, but if you have anything as we're moving through, feel free to add to the Q and A and I'll try to address those as we go. So when I say NPO or nonprofit organization, I'm generally talking about an organization that has the following four general characteristics. Uh, they have an exempt purpose, a tax exempt purpose. They are organized and operated exclusively for one or more of those exempt purposes. There's no private environment, which means no private benefit. Uh, the organization is not um, working for any one individual or group. And there are restrictions on political activities, as well as some limited lo lobbying and campaign work restrictions. So with that very brief summary of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about an NPO, I want to jump right into some governance roles. Um, in Massachusetts, you can be a nonprofit uh, member or non-member corporation. This is under chapter um, uh, uh, this is under the Massachusetts General Laws um, and Chapter 180. Our member corporation, you have members that um, act as shareholders. The members elect the directors and the bylaws set out who the member is or the class of members and how the directors are elected. In a non-member nonprofit corporation, directors are elected or re-elected by their directors. They're self-perpetuating. And the bylaws also set out when and how directors are elected to the board. This is a fundamental um, component of any nonprofit. And it's something that a lot of times people skip over, whether they're member or non-member organizations. And it's something that um, if you're joining a board, you want to find out right at the beginning. Am I joining a member board or a member organization or a non-member organization? Because again, that will drive how your um, directors are elected typically. You can find that out through your um, articles. It states it in your articles of incorporation filed with the Secretary of State. 
So when you join a board, there are some fundamental principles in how boards um, work um, and work together. Um, typically, when you join a board, there's an expectation that you as a new board member are going to govern at a board uh, level. Um, that you are going to communicate through, if you have staff, if you're lucky enough to have staff, then you're going to communicate through your CEO or your executive director and not communicate with the rest of the staff, that, that the uh, board really works with the senior staff and that the senior staff then supervises the rest of staff. There's an expectation that you actually have to show up and pay attention when you go to the board meetings, right? There is a, a fiduciary duty that we're going to talk about. As board members, you're acting as ambassadors to the public, so it's important that you understand enough about the organization, their past history, their current um, activities, and where they're looking to go in the future so that you can adequately act as an ambassador. And then more when we get down to the, the legal kind of requirements, uh, you need to adhere to your legal uh, uh, duty as a director of a nonprofit organization. And you need to be familiar with the, the mission, the organizing uh, documents and the policies. And we're going to follow those last two ones through the rest of this um, presentation, adhering to legal duty and being familiar with the mission of the organization and the governance documents. So let's talk about the duty of um, a, a director of a nonprofit organization. There are two duties in Massachusetts. There is the duty of care and there is the duty of loyalty. So a director must exercise their duties with the same care as an ordinarily prudent person in a similar position with respect to a similar organization. This definition always makes me smile a little bit because it's um, fairly wishy-washy in terms of um, providing a standard. Um, but it is that you must act in, um, in a kind of a reasonable way you know, that somebody else in a similar position with a similar type of organization would act. The duty of loyalty is a director must perform duties in good faith and in a manner reasonably believed to be in the interest of the organization. That's a little bit more straightforward um, to understand. So let's go to that duty of care. So when somebody comes to me and says, okay, I'm a director of a nonprofit corporation. I wanna make sure that I am complying with my fiduciary duty of care. What are some of the things that I should do? What are some of the things I should be thinking about? And so these are some of my, um, you know, my top um, items. One, it's really important that if you are participating in a board of a nonprofit organization, that you actually participate and you attend the meetings. Um, and if you're in a committee, that you attend those committee meetings. Um, you can't exercise your duty of care for that organization if you don't know what's happening um, at, the, at the board level. Um, Depending on the sophistication of the nonprofit organization, it might be that you join the board and you are handed a board manual that has all kinds of information about the organization and that gives you a good background. Um, more often than not, when you enter um, you know, a new board of a nonprofit, um, it, it's not quite as, um, uh, you don't always receive that information upfront. So you need to know to request um, information and that is your right and responsibility and then review that information about the entity. We'll talk a little bit about some of the documents that you really need to be looking at. You need to understand the financial statement. So part of your fiduciary duty of care is to understand how the organization is utilizing and protecting their charitable assets. So understanding what kind of financial statements are being uh, utilized, um, reviewing them on a regular basis need to be able to vote independently. 
Um, so again, you are voting um, on behalf of the organization. You wanna make sure that you are voting. Um, you're not beholden to anybody else for your vote. And you also wanna make sure that you are comfortable enough on that board that you can provide your opinion. Um, you are a member of the board and there's a reason for that. And that's because your opinion counts. Uh, so you wanna make sure that all members of the board feel comfortable enough to voice their opinion. Um, of course, directors are able to rely on certain information that's provided to them, right? So they may rely on legal opinions, they may rely on audits and financial statements. It's not that the directors are responsible for going in and, um, you know, combing through the financial statements, but they should be familiar with the financial statements, ask for review of the financial statements, maybe even speak with the auditor or the accountant on a quarterly or yearly basis. The duty of loyalty really it kind of boils down to prohibiting acting in self-interest. Um, remember, you are there to act on behalf of the best interests of the corporation, of the nonprofit corporation, and not in your own self-interest or in the interest of friends, neighbors, etc. Um, one of the best ways that you can do that is to manage any conflict of interest that may be presented to the board. So any conflict in which a director or related party of the director has a financial interest, um, conflicts are not prohibited. And that's something that I spend a lot of time educating boards about. Sometimes there's very good reasons for these conflicts, but when there is a conflict, the board needs to address it in a transparent manner and in a way that which they can document. And they should follow a policy. Um, one of the things that all nonprofits should have, especially those are tax exempt, is a conflict of interest policy and a questionnaire certification. Because it's not enough that when you join the board, you say, yes, I've seen the conflict of interest policy and never think about it again. Because conflicts of interest can potentially pop up at any time during your tenure as a board member. So one thing that's always recommended is sort of at an annual meeting that the um, all board members are given a questionnaire that just sort of reminds them and jogs their memory. Could you potentially have any conflicts? You know, what are some other, um, what are some relationships that you have with this board outside of the, or with this organization outside of your director responsibilities? And some organizations also do a certification that you've actually presented that information on a yearly basis. Um, again, those are not, um, uh, required the questionnaire and certification, but a little bit of um, uh, but by providing the money on an annual basis, it really can help prevent issues down the road. There's a third duty. Um, it's not a duty in Massachusetts, but it is one that I like, um, and I see it in other states, and it's called the duty of obedience. Um, it requires that directors ensure that the nonprofit's resources are used in a manner consistent with its purposes and that the NPO doesn't engage in unauthorized activities. And the reason why I like this particular fiduciary duty is because it really hones in on the idea that directors need to know the purpose of the organization. Um, now, this isn't the purpose that's on the website. This isn't the purpose that's on the marketing <laughs> materials. Um, this is the purpose, the legal purpose that's on the certificate of incorporation. When the organization was created, it had to specifically state what its purpose was. And then it had to go to the IRS and say, we think we're tax exempt because we have this specific purpose. And all of the activities that the nonprofit is engaged in should relate back to that purpose. Um, I do a lot of training with nonprofit organizations, with directors and staff, and it's amazing um, when I um, ask them what is their purpose, um, how many 
uh, board members can't articulate what the actual purpose is of the organization. You know, again, they may have a mission or a vision statement, but they are not as familiar with the actual um, legal purpose stated in the articles. So that's something that I try to really impress upon people that you should read the articles right away, even before you join the board and know the purpose of the organization. So let's turn to some governing instruments. Now, these are sort of the basics and, and probably people who have worked with nonprofits are very familiar with this, but it's worth just reviewing. Um, there is the articles of organization. That is the kind of first document of the nonprofit. That's like their birth certificate. Um, the nonprofit corporation is created when that is filed with the Massachusetts Secretary of State. It has various articles that set out the name, the purpose of the organization, various rights and powers, the initial incorporator, the initial uh, directors and officers, the fiscal year, some basic information. Article two in Massachusetts does provide the purpose. Now this is a public document. You can go onto the Massachusetts Secretary of State and pull it up for any uh, nonprofit corporation in Massachusetts. And again, this is the important language that it provides the directors the purpose of the organization. And so that when new programs, new ideas come to that nonprofit, Directors should always be thinking, does this further our purpose? Sometimes organizations have grown so much, they have you know, matured and they find themselves um, far afield of their original purpose. And at that point, it is really worth having um, the directors really look at their organizational documents and make sure that they get in line, right? That their purpose, their stated purpose and their activities um, are brought together. Another document um, that is incredibly important to boards and especially important to somebody who's new joining a board is the bylaws. Uh, these are like the house rules. They're internal. Uh, they basically describe the roles and responsibilities of the members if you're a member organization directors, officers. They describe how meeting, uh, meetings are run, notices for meetings, how directors or officers might be removed. Um, they provide a whole host of sort of the organizational guts of how the board of directors should be operating. Uh, so this is also important. Now with the bylaws, again, sometimes bylaws are drafted at the very initial uh, conception of the organization and then they're put in a drawer lost, nobody looks at them again. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll have an organization come to me and ask me, you know, how should we approach something? And I'll say, well, what do your bylaws say? And they say, oh, we haven't seen bylaws in 10 years. You know, we want to make sure that the bylaws are um, relevant, that the bylaws really um, help and are in a, a document that actually provides guidance that are referenced and utilized. Um, and we want to make sure that if they need to be updated, they're done, uh, they're, they're updated appropriately for the organization as well. Um, I see a lot of organizations who just pull a set of bylaws from uh, the website, that's what they have, and it doesn't fit their organization at all. Um, and so it's important that you do have organizing documents that make sense for your organization and that grow with your organization as well. So with my bylaws, um, I have some guiding principles that I tell my own clients when I draft them, <laughs> some bylaws. Um, I say, keep it simple. So when I draft bylaws, I ask them to read it. And I ask them to, you know, kind of mark something that they don't understand, go back and on those sections that they don't understand to read it one more time. And if they still don't understand it, then to give it back to me and have me rewrite it so that it does make sense for their organization um, and that the document is usable. 
you also want to make sure that bylaws are kept current. Like I said, organizations grow, they go through a life cycle and a bylaw, the bylaws that may be adopted at the inception of the organization may not be applicable to an organization that, that's had 20 years of uh, direct service. It may need to be updated. Typically, I recommend every three to five years that organizations take a look at their bylaws and see if those bylaws really fit their organization. You want to keep the amendments to the bylaws. That's really important. Um, sometimes people add an amendment and then that falls off and they, you know, their bylaws get a little bit out of sequence. So it's important to keep those. And then keep the bylaws available. Again, bylaws that nobody knows where they are or they don't use or not helpful to the board. So making sure that uh, for new board members that come on, there is a board packet that includes at least the articles and the bylaws. Um, making sure that maybe there's an online version for directors that they can access and review. There are also some policies and procedures that are helpful to directors. Um, again, any nonprofit may have a whole host of policies and procedures for the organization itself, but there are certain policies that I think are really helpful specifically for board operation. Um, the ones on the left are the ones that I'm going to talk about, although I think all of these policies, depending on the sophistication of the nonprofit, are important. Um, one is the conflict of interest, which we mentioned previously. One is a whistleblower policy. One is a document retention policy. And then one is a joint venture policy. So a conflict of interest policy, like I said, um, conflicts um, are normal. <laughs> they do happen. Uh, they are not inherently bad. Uh, they just have to be properly managed. Uh, so any conflict should be run through your conflict of interest policy. And basically, most conflict of interest policies follow the IRS guideline. There's a conflict of interest policy right on the IRS's website. And typically, that process is that there should be a disclosure of any transaction in which a director has a personal interest. I like to make a point of saying the director should make a disclosure even if they don't know, even if they don't know if it's a conflict, if they just think it could potentially be a conflict, that's when the director should come to the board and say, I may have a conflict. I'd like to bring it before the board. And then that director that's interested should recuse themselves. And then there should be a determination by the other directors if there is a conflict or not. And if it is a conflict, can it be managed? So one, one that I um, come across all the time is when I represent um, tenant um, organization nonprofits. And sometimes the tenants provide scholarships to children um, that are living in the, um, uh, the development. And um, maybe a, the niece of one of the directors that year is applying for one of the scholarships. So in that case, is there a conflict? Potentially. The director should bring that to the board to say, hey, listen, my niece is applying to one of our scholarships. And then the rest of the directors can say, is there a conflict or not? Potentially there's a conflict. Can they manage that conflict? Yeah, maybe they can manage that conflict by having a um, third party independent uh, reviewer of all of the scholarship applications that year. And they should document that. They should be transparent about their resolution. And that's really important, uh, the documentation and the transparency. Um, there is, just to note, IRS does impose penalties on the directors and sometimes on the organizations for improper benefits to directors. So when directors are improperly benefiting and, and receiving some private endowment from their role as a director of a nonprofit corporation. 
Another one I just wanted to talk through is the written information security program um, here in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts data security requirements, MGL 93H. Um, the data security requirements apply with respect to personal identity information of mass residents. Um, so for instance, when you have a name and a social security number or a driver's license and a state ID um, and some sort of financial account number, there has to be what's called a WISP um, uh, policy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a really important thing that's relatively new. It's not so new, but it's, it's new enough that some of the older nonprofits um, uh, are, you know, may not, or newer nonprofits may not know about it right away. So if you are a new board member, that's something that you want to also ask about, especially if the nonprofit that you're working with um, handles a lot of client data. Um, that's something that you want to make sure is in place. So um, this is the sort of, I picked out three different things that I see when people join a nonprofit um, and they have questions about or where I see issues come up. Um, so there are the three, the three things I'm going to talk about. I'm sure I could talk about a dozen more, but I wanted to pick out, um, you know, three different um, concepts that I think new board members really benefit for, for thinking through, thinking about as they join a board. One is private environment and private benefit. One is unrelated business activity, and one is political and lobbying activities. So again, this goes a little bit beyond just kind of understanding your articles and your bylaws and you know, getting a sense of the various policies in place. Um, this is really sort of thinking through your role as a director on a charitable organization. So one, we've sort of talked about this, this private environment and private benefit. So a private environment is unjust enrichment of an insider, and it's prohibited. Um, there are certain intermediate sanctions that can come down on, on an individual who is found to um, have privately benefited from their role uh, within the nonprofit as a director or officer or kind of a senior uh, management position. Um, where I tend to see it the most can be executive compensation arrangements where um, a board, you know, really values the executive director or the CEO and they, um, uh, they provide a um, bountiful <laughs> uh, compensation, you know, through maybe a car or some loans or, you know, not just the salary, but some other arrangements. Um, that's something that needs to be carefully monitored. Um, <clears throat> the other place that I see it a lot in, just because I'm doing a lot of real estate work um, in, in, is um, related party transactions with regards to the sale of property. So for instance, you have a board member who says, oh, I have a great property. I would love for uh, the organization to purchase it and they can build their new headquarters on it. Um, that's not um, in, you know, uh, inherently wrong, but what has to happen is there has to be some process in which the nonprofit is making sure that there's no private benefit to that director. So for instance, uh, there should be an appraisal of that property. Um, it should be a fair market value transaction. Um, it should be transparent. It should be carefully documented, right? And they should, for instance, that nonprofit, if they're going to buy that property, they should make sure that they're buying it at or below fair market. Um, you, you don't necessarily want to have a nonprofit purchasing a piece of property in which they've done no research, no, no uh, gathered no details, and that they are purchasing it for above a fair market value. That would be an improper benefit to the director and some private environment. 
So again, you know, when the organization is engaged with any kind of um, transaction with a related party, an interested party, like a director, an officer, or a senior staff person, it is important for the board to be thinking about the private and private benefit issues. And again, utilizing that conflict of interest policy, that's really important. The other is unrelated business activity. Um, so on unrelated, so organizations that are nonprofit corporations are organ and are, have tax exemption through um, the federal government um, are organized and operated exclusively for a um, charitable, educational, or other exempt purpose, right? And so all of their activity has to be within the scope of that tax exempt purpose. Again, most of the charities are, uh, uh, most, most of the nonprofit organizations we're talking about are charitable, educational, literary. Uh, so in terms of the purpose, there's kind of a very specific purpose in which they're engaged. Um, sometimes nonprofits engage in business outside of that purpose. Um, a trade, so it has to be a trade or business that's regularly carried on and not substantially related to their tax exempt purpose. So, you know, making money to support the mission does not make a business related uh, a business related to your tax exempt purpose. So you can't go outside of your tax exempt purpose, earn a lot of money, and say, "But yeah, we're putting it into the purpose." Uh, that would be considered an unrelated business activity. Now, an unrelated business activity um, comes along with unrelated business um, uh, income tax. So there is a tax on um, any sort of activity that's outside of your tax exempt purpose. So when we say a trade or business regularly carried on that's not substantially related to your tax exempt purpose, you know, the question is how much is too much, right? And there's no hard and fast rule. Um, the IRS does not give sort of a numerical test to say, you know, this is um, regularly carried on or not regularly carried on, or this is substantial or this is not substantial. Instead, they base, it's based on facts and circumstances. So one kind of famous example is of a museum. So a museum's, you know, a tax exempt purpose is um, educational, right? They're educating people on art. And so, you know, the museum itself, the building and the displays and the exhibits are, you know, an admission to see those is a tax exempt activity. But what about the cafe that they have in the middle of the museum? Is the revenue from that cafe a tax exempt activity or an unrelated business activity? Um, the courts have said, and IRS has said, well, that, that when people go to the museum for the day to look at the, the art, um, that um, you know, having a meal and, and obtaining sustenance is part of that experience, so it's okay. So then the question is, what about the gift shop? You know, they're basically selling, you know, items. Um, is that related to the museum's tax exempt activities? Again, as long as they're selling um, items that are related to the exhibits that are on display, then generally that is considered part of their, uh, their uh, tax exempt mission. But what if uh, they decide in, uh, to install a movie theater and um, after people are done looking at the art, go and see sort of first line movies, you know, the movies that are out, um, Spider-Man movies that have nothing to do with, um, you know, the, the exhibits that are taking place at that time. 
that's too far, right? So that is a trader business now that you have it being regularly carried on and it doesn't have anything related to the educational, cultural, arts activity of showing the exhibits. Um, so the, there's a sort of facts and circumstances test. Now, for most people, they are working with smaller organizations and it's more things like it's a food pantry and that's very clear that that's our tax exempt purpose. And then there's a board member who loves volleyball and they want to set up a volleyball uh, league and educational um, program for youth volleyball. And so the question there for those directors is, okay, well, uh, that's a great mission and we support that and it helps people to remain healthy and active. But is that truly within our uh, tax exempt purpose and is the income that comes from that um, going to be um, an unrelated business act? You know, is that going to be an unrelated business activity and is that going to be taxed? I think I see a question. Um, the question was, why does management compensation raise an issue of private inurement um, for the board members? Um, to, so to go back uh, on that slide, um, it's primarily because the board is responsible for hiring, evaluating, and firing the executive director or the CEO. That is one of the board's, um, um, you know, one of their primary duties is to make sure that they are um, uh, they are managing that senior level staff. And as part of that, it's their job to make sure that they are in fact um, looking at the compensation correctly and that they are not privately benefiting an individual by giving them an excessive salary. Um, and to be honest, in a lot of organizations, the executive director um, or the CEO um, can exert a lot of control in the organization. Um, especially uh, there's this thing called founder syndrome that many people are maybe familiar with, um, where somebody comes up with a wonderful idea, uh, they set up a nonprofit organization, and they sort of rule that nonprofit with an iron fist, and they bring, you know, related friends in to be their, their, their board. And, and sometimes that board starts to say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we're the board, we're supposed to be making that um, decision. Um, and that can, that can lead to conflict about, you know, who's governing who. Um, I do another seminar called Where is the Line, which is about, you know, the executive director and the board relationship and who's supposed to be doing what. Um, and so it, it falls into that category, that it is the board's responsibility to make sure compensation is appropriate for the organization. So, whoops, uh, so the other third um, item that I just wanted to talk about is uh, political and lobbying activities. So this is one of my favorite topics for nonprofits, especially in the past um, few years, it has been ripe for discussion. Um, nonprofit um, uh, 501c3 tax exempt organizations are not allowed to endorse or oppose a political candidate. Um, it's called the Johnson Amendment. It was passed in 1954 um, and uh, led by Lyndon Johnson, who was um, running for Senate at the time and a nonprofit um, opposed him. So when he won uh, the election and he got to Washington, he passed this prohibitive language that said uh, 
nonprofit 501c3 tax exempt organizations can't endorse or oppose political candidates. So that's something that um, has been in the news, um, something that um, is being looked at. There are a lot of 501c3 organizations and other uh, tax exempt organizations like churches who do not agree with that and feel like they have a voice and they should be allowed to participate in the political uh, process as it will. Um, but just know that for a 501c3 tax exempt organization at this point, um, you are not allowed to either support or oppose any political candidate. Um, a 501c3, however, can do lobbying. A lot of times people think that we, they cannot do lobbying. Um, you can do lobbying so long as it's an insubstantial amount. Um, so lobbying for tax purposes requires um, um, advocacy or contact about specific legislation. Right. So um, um, making sure that there is a uh, that the organization understands the line between lobbying and advocacy is important. So providing information on issues that's nonpartisan, that's advocacy. And that's absolutely allowed by public charities. Um, when you actually start to um, reach out to your constituents or your members and you start to um, uh, suggest how they should vote or how they should think about a specific legislation, that's lobbying. Lobbying may be okay, it just has to be an insubstantial amount. And that's a whole other seminar, but um, it is something to just kind of think about. If you see that your organization is sending out um, you know, a tweet that says, hey, you know, this law is coming down the pike, make sure you call your local representative to, um, uh, you know, support or oppose it. Just know in the back of your head, hey, wait, I think that's lobbying. And have we looked at the lobbying issues for our organization? Okay, so liability. Um, I try not to, oops, hold on one second. Let me just um, so for liability, um, when I first started giving this seminar, I realized that my liability section was scaring potential board members. And so I want to let you know that I'm, I'm sort of talking a little bit about liability, but I also want to talk about the protections that you have as a director or an officer of a nonprofit um, corporation. Um, and I, I want to make sure that people are utilizing this information so that when they join a new board, they can actually ask the right questions. So do I have adequate protection um, by joining this board? So directors have a liability for the breach of duty of care, loyalty, and another state's obedience, um, for knowing participation in wrongful acts, and in certain circumstances, the acts of the nonprofit itself. Um, so it is a real responsibility. It comes with um, uh, liability for specific actions. Now, there are certain protections. Um, there is the statutory amnesty in Massachusetts. Um, it allows nonprofits to limit liability of directors in lawsuits brought by the NPO itself or on its behalf. Um, there's also the Secretary of State suggests language that should be included in the articles where it says no director or officer shall be personally liable, et cetera. So this is the language that is suggested by the Massachusetts Secretary of State. So when you're looking at a nonprofit and you're thinking about joining their board, one thing to do is sort of look at the articles and see if they have this, this language in the articles. If they don't, maybe ask about it and see if it might be something that could be included. Maybe the articles could be amended to include. 
There are also charitable immunity laws. So there's a Massachusetts nonprofit charitable immunity, Massachusetts director and officer immunity. There's the Federal Volunteer Protection Act. Um, and those are all great and they're wonderful protections, but they do have exclusions, they have limits, they have caps. And so the thing that really you want to talk to your nonprofit about and you want to make sure that you have an understanding about whether it's offered or not is director and officer insurance. So we often call it DNO insurance. This is the best protection for any director who's serving on a nonprofit charitable organization in Massachusetts. Um, it'll reimburse the director's liability to the NPO or an outside party. Um, it may have certain exclusions. Um, so one story I tell is I work with a lot of um, uh, nonprofits that are engaged in real estate. And um, I happened to look at their DNO insurance and there was an exclusion at the very bottom for any uh, real property transaction, which was the majority of the activity in which the organization was um, engaging. So, you know, that didn't actually cover them very well. So you wanna make sure that you are thoughtful about the DNO insurance, you get a copy of it and you take a look at it. And you wanna make sure that those exclusions aren't going to uh, negate any protection that it could provide to you. Okay, so um, I am still okay. So I want to talk a little bit about compliance. And just uh, before I talk about the compliance, I want to put it in context. Um, most of the time, board members do not do these filings, um, and they are not responsible for making sure that the organization is compliant at the state or federal level. Um, now, that may depend on how sophisticated your organizations are, you know, very small grassroots organizations. It is the directors and the officers who are doing these filings. If it's your own organization that you're, you're helping to start, you will become intimately familiar with these filings. But for the majority of people who are joining boards that are well-established um, and that may have staff, these are not typically the things that you have to do um, to, uh, you know, on a regular basis. But I think it's important that you understand that these filings have to be, um, they have to be submitted, that they have to be timely, um, and that you kind of understand the types of filings that um, the, the organization is responsible for. So very briefly, in Massachusetts, when a nonprofit corporation, 501c3 organization, um, is uh, you know, incorporating, these are some of the things that they need to file. They need to file with the Secretary of State. That's their initial registration by submitting the articles. Uh, they need to also file with the Attorney General, uh, with the, um, the Division of Public Charities. There's an initial registration, um, and when you do that initial registration, you also get a certificate of solicitation. Um, and that's really important because that allows the organization to go out and fundraise. So while the Secretary of State is sort of focused on the corporate structure of the nonprofit, the Attorney General is primarily focused on the um, um, application and the protection of the charitable assets of the charitable organization. And so their focus is a little bit different than the Secretary of State's and they really kind of care about how you are um, representing your organization, how you're obtaining funds from the general public, how you're utilizing those charitable interests. You may also file with the Department of Revenue for sales tax exemption, and then depending if you own real estate, the city for property tax exemption. So let's talk about the annual filings. So again, those are sort of the initial filings you would do in Massachusetts, but the annual filings are the ones that you may be reviewing on an, on an annual basis as a director. So the Secretary of State requires an annual filing every year by November 1st. 
Um, it, it is important that you are in good standing with the Secretary of State because you can't get a good standing certificate um, unless you are. Um, not to mention, it's really important that the most current information about your organization is in the database so that it's available to the public. You can very simply uh, find out if your organization is in good standing by searching the Massachusetts Secretary of State's website. It'll come up with not only the original articles, any amendments, any changes, but every annual filing. There's also a annual filing with the Attorney General's office. Um, this is called the annual form PC. Um, and it's important for um, this filing to happen because if you don't file, you lose your certificate of solicitation, right? You're not allowed to go out and fundraise unless you were in good standing with the Attorney General's office. This filing is a little bit more complicated than the Secretary of State's because again, they're looking at the financial information that you're providing along with your filing. They wanna see what, um, what your uh, financing sources are, how you're utilizing those charitable assets. Um, you can also see if you're in good standing at the Secretary of the Attorney General's website, this is the link. Um, what I like about the Attorney General's website is they often have um, each of the, uh, if there's a change to your articles or bylaws, they may have that also scanned in. They may have um, the IRS filings there as well. So if you're looking for sort of the financial guts of a nonprofit, this is a much better website to go to. There's also, if your nonprofit corporation is a 501c3 organization or a, non, a tax exempt organization with the IRS, um, you would have initially filed a form 1023. Uh, you would have said to the IRS, okay, Massachusetts says we're a nonprofit corporation. Now we believe that we qualify for tax exemption and there would be a determination letter. Once an organization has that determination letter, they are required to file with the IRS on an annual basis, the form 990. There are several different types of 990 forms, <clears throat> and um, you can find out, um, you know, how by looking at your gross receipts, you can determine what kind of 990 form you need to fill out. Um, the 990 and the postcard is very simple. It's an online, very simple. Um, the 990 easy is not particularly easy. Um, usually an organization can fill it out themselves, but it may take a, a bookkeeper or an account to help them. And the 990 is a fairly meaty organ, uh, document that lists out a lot of information about the organization. Lists out directors, salaries, uh, they want information about the activities of the organization. Um, it is a, a, a fairly complicated and needy uh, document that it gets um, submitted and uploaded to the IRS. You can find out, again, any organization you're thinking about joining or any organization that you have questions about, you can go on to the IRS website and also find out if they're in good standing with the IRS. And you can get lots of information from past 990s as well. So in terms of the annual filings, again, like I said up in the beginning, I think it's really important for boards to monitor these annual filings. Um, basically, non-compliance um, can mean that you're no longer in good standing at the Secretary of State. Um, if you have non-compliance at the Attorney General's, you also have uh, lose your ability to fundraise. Um, and you don't want to ever have to go back to your um, 
your uh, your donors to say, oh wait, you know, sorry, we we've lost our our good standing or our ability to fundraise. And in the IRS's case, if you don't file for three consecutive years, you automatically lose your tax exemption. Um, it's re it's revoked by the IRS. There's no, um, hey, here's a letter. You might be, you know, in danger of being revoked. It's an automatic revo uh, revocation after three years. And so there are real consequences for noncompliance. Um, this is particularly um, important for those smaller, newer organizations that are starting and may not have anybody on their board who has ever done this before. Um, you know, understanding that there are financial and informational returns that have to be given to state and federal government is really important to make sure that the organization is on good footing. Um, preventative medicine goes a long way. So by making sure that the board is um, aware of the annual filings, you know, a lot of times boards don't even know that these filings get done, right? And they don't really understand the importance of them. So just making it part of the board discussion, maybe part of the board annual meeting um, and making sure that people understand that these filings are getting done every year um, really can help so that one year, if it, it slips off the agenda, there's a board member that says, wait a minute, shouldn't we be reviewing our form 990? Shouldn't we be reviewing um, the information that goes to the Massachusetts Secretary of State and Attorney General's office? This is also um, a, a way to sort of on an annual basis, educate the board about the financials, about the corporate structure, and remind everybody about the purpose of the organization. So these, in, these filings are meant to sort of um, be an update, an informational return about the corporate structure and about the financials of the organization. And if the board is in a um, you know, is in the habit of annually reviewing these, this will be continual, you know, continually reminding people about the financials of the organization, the structure, and of the purpose. And then finally, all of these are available online. Um, they are digital records of the nonprofit. They are public and open. And so it's this public face of the organization. So if you're a nonprofit uh, and you, you know you sit on the board of a nonprofit and it's going out there and it's seeking um, foundation funds, well, one of the first things a foundation is going to do is go and look at these public records. So it's an opportunity for organizations to really kind of take stock of their organization, um, make sure that they are in fact filling out the forms correctly and adequately representing the organization. Um, sometimes I'll see a nonprofit that hired an accountant 10 years ago and that accountant did a 990 and, and that accountant just files the same 990 every year, changes the financial information, but the purpose of the organization, the activities doesn't really update the organization and, and the way it's presented to the public. And that's a missed opportunity, right? So that's something that the board should monitor and say, okay, this is a document that anybody can go look at that represents our organization. And so it's important for the board to be actually familiar with it and also to um, make sure that it's, a, it's the best representation of the organization uh, that they can provide. So I wanted to provide some other um, resources. So if you're, a, if you're an attorney and you're thinking about um, joining a board, um, again, I, I uh, reiterate that there's a great program on May 10th that um, you might benefit from. It's going to have um, several panels of nonprofits, and they're going to talk about what their expectations um, are for being a board member. Um, they're going to, you know, have a discussion about uh, the responsibilities that they say, say the 
see the board having. Um, and then there's going to be an opportunity for networking as well, and it's held at the BBA. Um, so, so that's one wonderful opportunity that people could join and, and uh, participate in. Um, but these are some others that you could uh, peruse at your leisure. Um, the, the one that I think is absolutely important, and if you are in a position to put together a new board member manual, right? If, you, if you're already on a board and you're thinking like, oh, our, our nonprofit board should have a manual that you know, we hand to um, our incoming uh, board members, You've already thought through, okay, we're going to add our articles, we're going to add our bylaws, we're going to add our policies, maybe we can add some of our last financials, our audit, or some of our 990s so that people have a, a sense of the financials of the organization. The other really important thing that you should have in that new board member manual is the Massachusetts Attorney General's Board Guide. It's a great, very readable um, sort of um, kind of 101 guide for board members of any charitable organization. Um, I highly recommend it. And I think it's a it's very helpful. To, again, it's a very um, easy sort of read for people, and very understandable. It's not very legalese. Um, it's not overly legalese, I think. Um, there's also the resource at the BBA tax exempt organization section. So if you're a member of the BBA, um, we do have this tax exempt steering committee. Um, I've been on it for, I think about 10 years and um, I have found it a wonderful resource. They, we host uh, brown bag lunches with you know, topics. We have a section on changes to Mass General Law 180. Um, we have um, a whole series of, of different events and public speakers. So if you're a member of the BBA, you should check us out um, and uh, you know, make sure you're on our, uh, our, um, our listserv and, and uh, have uh, resources that you can participate in and maybe even consider joining. Um, BoardSource is a nice website um, that I think has a lot of resources for board members. Uh, there are a lot of, kind of like blog posts. There are some documents there. So if your organization is looking for some sample policies, I really like the BoardSource and National Council of Nonprofits. They do a good job as well of highlighting issues that um, board members should be uh, aware of. Sidestar is the organization that's contracted with the IRS, and they post um, the 990s. Um, they've really kind of expanded their suite of services as well. And so not only do they just post the 990s that are filed with the IRS, but they have um, uh, started uh, putting profiles together of nonprofits. And the nonprofits have to participate and provide some of the information, but they rate the nonprofits. And so you can find a lot of really good information about uh, nonprofits on GuideStar. The, the, you can become a member for free, and then there's a premium version that allows you access to more information, but it is something worth looking at. And then another organization that I would um, uh, put in a plug for is Lawyers Clearinghouse. I've been on the board there for a while. Um, they do some wonderful uh, programs for nonprofits. Um, they are um, uh, they provide pro bono legal assistance to certain nonprofits um, that you know meet certain requirements. But they also um, provide a lot of education for nonprofit organizations. So um, you should check them out if you're on a board and you're looking for some education about how your board should organize in certain things. They talk. They have seminars on lobbying. They have seminars on um, HR issues. Um, you know, on corporate compliance, et cetera. Um, I, they do a great one on uh, the WISP, the Written Information Security uh, Program. 
policy. So you can go onto their website as well and look at the various events that they're sponsoring. Um, so those are always some good resources for you. So that comes to the end. I think I have eight minutes to spare. If there are any questions, I'm happy to um, uh, address those. Um, I see one in here. What is the difference between an NPO and an NGO? And would this information apply equally to NGOs? So NPOs are not-for-profit organizations. Uh, the not-for-profit organization typically, like I said, is an organization that's incorporated at the state. And um, it is uh, uh, then goes on to be tax exempt at the federal level. Uh, an NGO is a non-governmental organization. So I think NPOs fall under, NGO is sort of a broader category of organizations that are non-governmental, but have an exempt, um, typically an exempt purpose. I think a lot of the policy, a lot of the, um, so you could be both an NPO and an NGO. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the things that we were talking about here would absolutely apply to an NGO, depending on the, their, uh, their corporate structure. Um, there's another question, what's the difference between an NPO and a private foundation? So um, when you incorporate in, in Massachusetts under chapter 180, you're um, incorporating under as a nonprofit corporation. Um, just because you're a nonprofit corporation doesn't give you tax exemption, right? You're just stating that your corporation's primary purpose is for a tax exempt, I'm sorry, is for a, um, uh, a nonprofit um, purpose as stipulated under Massachusetts law. When you become a nonprofit corporation under Chapter 180 in Massachusetts, if you qualify uh, for tax exemption, you go to the IRS and you put in an application. So say you believe that you are a 501c3 public charity. When you go to the IRS, the default is private foundation. And private foundation is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3, but it has very specific requirements about uh, distribution of assets every year, certain reporting requirements. So that's the default. If you want to be considered a private uh, public charity, which is in many many circumstances people consider it's kind of that gold standard because um, it is considered the entity that has uh, the most. Um, uh, tax exempt subsidy because uh, when you are when public makes donations to your 501c3 public charity, uh, you know they are tax deductible um, as well as many private foundations provide subsidy to the public charity in, in forms of grants. Um, you actually have to prove to the IRS that you are a public charity. Right. So a public charity is one that is governed by independent directors that has um, receives its support through the public or through program services um, that are related to its tax exempt purpose. So there are certain requirements that you have to um, prove to the IRS that makes you a public charity. So an NPO encompasses a not-for-profit corporation or organization encompasses both private foundation and public charity. The difference between a public charity and a private foundation is at the IRS level when they determine your tax exemption. Hope that answers that question. All right, any other questions? All right, so Jenna, not seeing any other questions, I want to thank everybody for attending. And again, I wanted to, um, you know, uh, recommend that you check out the May 10th um, uh, charitable board service program with the BBA.
Thank you so much to Teresa and thank you so much to all of our attendees for joining us today. Um, again, May 10th at the BBA from 4 to 6 p.m. is the uh, Chairman Board Service Event Networking. So definitely consider uh, registering. And thank you again so much. Have a great rest of your day, everyone. Great. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you.